the basis of a humane immigration policy is to begin to respect people fully as human beings. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode and members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from On the Media, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff, Counterspin, The Laura Flanders Show, Democracy Now!, The Benjamin Dixon Show, and Backstory. One of my first acts will be to get all of the drug lords, all of the bad ones. We have some bad, bad people in this country that have to go out. Donald Trump's campaign rhetoric about ridding the United States of dangerous outsiders is now becoming a reality. Immigration raids some communities on edge after a string of deportation raids in at least six states. Eight-year-old Kelly was born in the United States, but her parents are undocumented. And at the mention of her father, currently in ICE detention, she can't stop crying. Her mother among those living in fear that their families may soon be torn apart. In Texas, agents with Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, entered the El Paso County Courthouse last week in order to arrest an undocumented woman who'd gone to court seeking a protective order against her alleged domestic abuser. Several studies show that immigrants actually commit fewer violent crimes than the population at large, but... As we are reminded every day, facts are of no concern to an administration swept into office on the politics of xenophobia and lies. So now, with two new executive orders in hand and guidelines for their implementation released this week, the Department of Homeland Security is dismantling the protocols that obliged immigration police to prioritize the most flagrant or dangerous cases involving the undocumented. Immigration officers are now going to have much broader discretion to decide who to round up in the first place. So practically speaking here, if an agent goes on a raid to find a criminal undocumented immigrant, anyone else who happens to be with that person at the same time who's also here unlawfully may now be deported. This includes those who have been convicted of any criminal offense charged with any criminal offense, committed acts that constitute perhaps a chargeable criminal offense or, quote, otherwise pose a risk to public safety or national security. So, basically, everyone. Immigration lawyer Mazafar Chishti says a zero-tolerance image is what the Trump administration seeks to portray, but he also believes it's in large part just smoke and handcuffs. You know, I think the effort here is to create a feeling that this is a different day in the world of immigration enforcement, and there is a new sheriff in town. To round up all 11.2 million people in the country is physically, constitutionally, legally, and operationally impossible. So, therefore, there is much more a narrative here of enforcement than there will be a real sustainable level of immigration enforcement the Obama administration gets the credit for having removed in any one year the largest number of people to peak of removals in 2011, about 450,000 people. Any expert on immigration enforcement believes that to remove much larger group of people is very difficult for a couple of reasons. A, it requires many more resources, and Congress hasn't given those resources to the executives yet. Secondly, there's due process of law, which slows any person's removal. 
Third, it requires a significant amount of international cooperation. I mean, hidden in these executive orders is the belief that Mexico is just voluntarily going to take all Mexicans that we want to remove or all Central Americans and other South Americans that cross through the Mexican territory to the United States back to their country. I mean, it's almost the same narrative as saying Mexico will pay for the wall. You make statements without ever having verified from the government that is implicated in that. The Trump administration has talked about hiring 5,000 new border agents and 10,000 ICE officers to do the job. Is that a plausible notion? The fact is that we have been having difficulty recruiting border officers for which slots have already been allotted. About 60% of them cannot pass a polygraph test. To hire a federal enforcement official is always a very tedious task. It takes typically about 18 months. So just to say that we're going to hire 5,000 Border Patrol agents, 10,000 ICE agents, as if it's going to happen tomorrow, is one more sort of indication as to why the rhetoric is more dominant here than facts. So you believe that it's impractical and part of a kind of PR show. But in the meantime, a lot of people are going to be caught up in the show. Let's not sort of underemphasize the alarming nature of this development. The principal effect is that it instills fear and unpredictability in a large section of the unauthorized population, which until recently had begun to have certain semblance of a normal life, that if you are just an ordinary status violator, not committed a crime, you can get up in the morning, go to work, and hope that you can come back and see your children at night again. That certainty now has been removed. People are anxious and will be anxious at all times under this order because it makes everyone a priority. I've mentioned that data about undocumented aliens and crime does not support the notion that it is an especially criminal cohort. But on the campaign trail, Trump cherry-picked anecdotes, horrifying ones, about victims of crimes committed by undocumented residents. In the audience tonight, we have four mothers, unbelievable people that I've gotten to know over a period of years whose children have been killed, brutally killed, by people that came into the country illegally. My name is Ruth Johnston Martin. My husband was shot by an illegal alien. He fought the good fight, but he took his last breath in 2002. And I As I understand the new rules, there's actually a provision to highlight, to publicize crimes committed by the undocumented. Tell me about voice. So voice is a sub-department created in the Immigration Customs Enforcement called Victims of Immigration Crime Engagement. And this is going to provide support to victims of crimes. But also, most importantly, it's going to provide the names of all people who have committed these crimes, where they committed them, what their status was, what their history was. And this is a reversal of a policy that federal government has had over time where you would not reveal the information that government had on individual cases. At the same time, they want to highlight those jurisdictions in the country, states and localities, which do not honor detainers from the federal government, and if those jurisdictions are released, people, they then proceed to commit a crime. They want to highlight every crime of the person, clearly to shame the cities. I have actually never seen a situation 
where a president of the United States uses government information to shame another law enforcement agency. I think that is unprecedented. You know, let me also just highlight one more thing. The president sustained his campaign by parading the victims of the crimes of unauthorized and highlighting the unsympathetic unauthorized people. And it worked very well for him. I think what we'll begin to see is sympathetic people, just mothers and grandmothers and cooks and soccer coaches being handcuffed. And the narrative will shift from the unsympathetic to the sympathetic. And that may provide a different kind of a public relations challenge that the president may not be prepared for. On the other hand, isn't it exactly what the president wants to project? Law and order, tough on crime, cracking down on illegal immigration? I think that's absolutely true. I think what this level and nature of enforcement will prove is that not all unauthorized people are equal. There are sympathetic people among the unauthorized as there are sympathetic people among all populations. No one is expecting to give a standing ovation to an unauthorized person. That's not what policy tries to elicit. All that decent policy tries to say is that, look, there are nuances among populations. And in a world of limited resources, even the best resource enforcement agency has to draw priorities. No agency has enough resource to go after a child rapist and a jaywalker at the same time. And there's a security component to this, which will also, I think, ultimately cost the president. If resources are spent going after jaywalkers, that's less resources to go after child molesters. And then at some point we'll see that has a significant public security component, which may begin to affect the narrative of the president. Got a bad idea, a bad idea. 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 Because of Mr. Trump's initiatives um, in blaming immigrants uh, for a great deal of the difficulties that the United States economy has, uh, and not hesitating to say that a solution to at least some of those difficulties would be found in expelling immigrants, and noting, to be fair, that the Obama administration itself was a major deporter of immigrants, um, I have been struck by the effort of those who support this, not only to suggest that our economic problems have something uniquely to do with immigration, but to see in deporting large numbers of people a solution. This strikes me as an economist as a classic effort to distract people caught up in an economic system that isn't working to blame a scapegoat, to blame somebody else, someone else you can be angry at and take out your upset about, even though it has very little to do. And then I noticed that the biggest rationale for doing this 
is not the economic argument because, in fact, it's a difficult argument to make. Right. So it has become the crime right. argument that somehow, and you could notice in Mr. Trump's campaign and so forth, this notion that immigrants are criminals or disproportionately criminal or impose on us as right. native citizens a criminal element we wouldn't otherwise have. You've done some reporting. Tell us about well, it. One of the things is that I was on the campaign trail and in Cleveland during the Republican convention. So I did see firsthand the very effective testimonials of real live people whose loved ones were killed by individuals who were chronic offenders who were undocumented and in this country illegally. Right. There are such dozens of cases, and Mr. Trump did a very compelling job to give these, uh, these families that are still very much in pain an opportunity in a platform. I wouldn't deny their pain. But there's a deeper reality, and you know you can only tell these stories not in the aggregate, but let's get particular. I've been covering the city of New York for 30 years now. Okay, I'm 61. When I first started working as a beat reporter in 1990, there were 2,262 homicides. It's a big number to imagine you in know, one year. In one year, right? The last year, last year, 330 people were killed. That's stunning. To get a sense of what that means, 2,000 people, imagine 2,000 pairs of shoes. Those are individuals that did not get killed. This is a reduction dramatically of homicides. What was happening during that period of time? Over a half million undocumented immigrants came into parts of New York City that in the 1970s had been laid low by all the exploitative things you talk about about capitalism. Right. Neighborhoods hollowed out, found value, stabilized neighborhoods, and transformed them. Now, the big challenge is it's become such a successful city, global capital flying out of places like China is now flooding into New York, displacing those very same homesteaders that turned these communities around. This is a city of immigrants. It's a city of immigrants that has thrived and prospered on an historic level because of those immigrants. Right. So you're basically telling us that not only did the immigrant wave coming into New York not cause or worsen crime, it's extremely the opposite. The reality is when you look at the numbers, which right. is in the end what we have to look at, right. because otherwise we get lost in the specifics of each horrible situation. Right. When you look at the numbers, immigration, and you've given the clue to it, is a way to reduce the problem of crime, because the immigrants have no money, go into the neighborhoods that are the worst, right. quote, neighborhoods, and bring life and people and community into places that had none of those things. And family. And family into it. And religious values. Yes. Irrespective. And I may setting not up be, their storefront like churches. So, and and what, what's happened is the consequence also, we've seen it even, I mean, peace is breaking out all over. Yeah. It's a good news story. Uh, we have a situation where at the Bloomberg, end of the Bloomberg administration, we got up to around 700,000 stop and frisks. This was a policy started under Ray Kelly. The idea was stop and frisk primarily individuals of color. Less than 10% were ever arrested or even got a citation. We've dropped that number, Richard, to 22,000 a year, and the crime continues to go down. Immigration is a nation builder not a destroyer. That's my experience. That's what I've seen. Wow. I mean, it's something really to, to 
it's it's hard for me to digest. The stop and frisk, just to remind everyone, was a major political issue. It's part of what uh, Mayor de Blasio used to become the mayor of right. New York, his opposition uh, to it, uh, a program deeply resented by the African-American and Hispanic uh, communities right. here in New York. Um, also terribly expensive. Over the period of time of Michael Bloomberg's tenure, the city paid out a billion dollars to settle tort claims for individuals whose civil rights were violated or where a stop and frisk incident caused the police to overreact. So it was also very expensive from the standpoint of taxpayer accountability. Right. And it didn't work, as you see. Right. Exactly. Today's episode is sponsored by Blue Apron, who delivers fresh, perfectly portioned ingredients for great meals right to your door for less than the cost of eating out. We all know not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it's important to know where your food comes from. And thankfully, for less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers easy-to-follow recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients courtesy of over 150 local farms, ranches, and fisheries across the U.S., right to your door. It's everything you need to make a sustainable and delicious home-cooked meal in 40 minutes or less. Plus, one of the best benefits is that they help you cook and eat meals you never would have thought to prepare yourself. A couple of things they have coming up, mushroom and goat cheese quiches with arugula salad and pink lemon vinaigrette, and Oaxaca cheese and plantain tortas. I know they'll be delicious, but before learning about them from Blue Apron, I could hardly have told you what a torta was. So check out this week's menu for yourself and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash best. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash best. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Vicious, extreme, and frightening. Some of the terms being used to describe the Trump administration's announced plans on immigration. The executive orders and attendant guidance memos greatly expand the category of people prioritized for deportation. The category of criminal could now include someone accused of a crime or believed to be a risk. Along with essentially deputizing local and state law enforcement to act as immigration officials and cutting federal resources to cities that don't go along with the program. Stories of ICE, immigration and customs enforcement, pulling people out of hospitals and parents away from children are providing vivid illustration of what may be ahead, even as they show us that it was in some senses already here. In resistance to these actions, what the New York Times called the brutal idiocy of it all, perhaps we have an opportunity for a deeper rethinking of deportation policy in general. Grounded in the idea that, as our next guest wrote recently in a column for Huffington Post, human beings who happen to be non-citizens have fundamental rights, too. Mazui Izeki is deputy director of the Immigrant Defense Project. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Mazui Izeki. Hi, thank you for having me. 
Many people saw the gut-wrenching pictures when Guadalupe Garcia de Grayos was taken away in a van. She was a 35-year-old mother of two in Phoenix who checked in with immigration officials regularly because she was out of status, and, and this time they took her and sent her to Mexico, where she hasn't lived since she was 14. A New York Times editorial reflected a pervasive kind of response. The headline was, Bad dude? No, but deported anyway. Trump promised to go after criminal aliens, the paper said, but Ms. Rios fits no such definition and was no threat. Now, it's clear that the paper opposes the policy generally, but we're still inside this frame of criminality as criterion. I wonder, what do you see as the problems with this criminal immigrant approach with regard to deportation? Just to put it a little bit into context, you know, I think the the broader problem is, you know, especially over the past 20 years that we have experienced the rapid development of the world's largest system to imprison and exile immigrants. And the heart of the system has been this government-constructed state of emergency that really relies on racialized fear and has constricted the entire criminal legal system from the police to the courts to the prisons to probation and eternally brands people as so-called criminals. And, and, you know, I think this uh, is a, it's definitely a challenge in terms of who is deserving and who is undeserving of rights. But, you know, in many ways, that's the heart of criminalization, right, where a system of criminalization basically expands and legitimizes surveillance and regulation and punishment of these certain peoples and communities, while at the same time determining that they don't deserve any protection. Uh, I remember an article long ago in the New York Times called Criminal Communities, which really highlighted uh, for me the way they're often, it's not, we read it as a singling out of criminality, but in fact, it's almost always being used to to brand or to target uh, entire communities of, of people. Yeah, and I think in terms of the particular context of immigration, um, you know, the exclusion and expulsion of particular groups of people who have been deemed a threat or un-American has very much been part of the whole project of nation building since the very beginning, right? Where, you know, certain bodies represent an, an imminent or inherent threat from the Native Americans to people, uh, formerly enslaved people, you know, and like fast forward to the current day, right? Where the target is, you know, people from Muslim countries or criminalized immigrants. And, you know, I think where we really saw convergence of this is in the 1990s, right? Where, uh, you know, very highly punitive frame was applied to so many aspects of U.S. policy, whether in welfare or the crime bill. And in the case of immigrants, these particularly harsh immigration policies, which rapidly expanded the number of uh, criminal offenses that would subject someone to deportation, but also made deportation a mandatory minimum in the vast majority of cases. It's at this particular moment that we're living in, the convergence of the war on the poor and then on immigrants and an overall on criminalized people of color converge with these themes of, you know, personal responsibility, law and order and the rule of law uh, that we've been fighting against since the 1990s. It really does seem that we can't get at these problems if we don't see them as connected in that way, if we don't see that coherence. I mean, 
when we look at deportation policy, you have to look at something like broken windows policing here in New York, in which people, black and brown people, are targeted for arrest on things like quality of life, selling loose cigarettes, and then they have the quote-unquote criminal record that can now make them subject to deportation. It seems like you really can't make sense in terms of pushback, in terms of resistance, unless you see these things as of a piece. Yeah, I mean, I think the frame and the logic behind zero tolerance or broken windows policing is exactly what we're experiencing right now under, especially um, under the Trump administration and the memos that you mentioned in the beginning, where people, you know, the frame of criminalization is expanded to anyone who's ever committed something that that you could be arrested for, which is basically anybody, I would argue. And then, you know, or if you have been arrested, but your charges are still pending. Um, And then, of course, people with a wide range of criminal convictions. But, you know, today in the uh, New York Post, there was a NYPD detective from Queens who basically made this uh, very powerful parallel, he, he equates ICE activities to broken windows policing, where he says, you know, it's a privilege to live in this country, not a right. And is it asking too much uh, to ask someone to not a cr- commit a crime? So the very existence of this person being here is, you know, a threat. Wow. wow. Well, the in terms of reporting, the imperviousness to fact is troubling. I mean, I have seen the statistics showing that the crime rate has, in fact, declined during the period in which the immigration population increased, including in gateway cities like Miami and El Paso. So when Donald Trump stands up to sign these orders with family members, people who've had family members killed by immigrants as a representation of the issue being addressed, it, uh, you know, the, the clash between image and reality, I think, can, can be overwhelming, including for reporters who are supposed to be sorting it out for us. Yeah, and I think this is where the kind of age-old role of racialized fear really comes in, where there are certain uh, ideas of of othering and who doesn't belong and who presents a threat that are very much part of the whole idea of who belongs, right, or who has rights. And it's definitely a challenge because you're absolutely right. The uh, reality doesn't match at all anywhere the the threat or the risk. And this is consistent with policies about mass policing and mass imprisonment, whether you're citizen or non-citizen, right? The crime rate has been decreasing since the 70s, and yet the society becomes more and more punitive. And so, you know, I think partly how we're trying to elevate a conversation, at least amongst those who would listen, is, you know, in this era of, uh, you know, the era of economic restructuring that has been happening since the 60s through the 70s and 90s, like what the government's response has been is to embody the blame for economic and social problems or disorder on people, right, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the system. And part of the challenge that we face is the massive diversion of resources to surveillance, to imprisonment and deportation and uh, expanding of police forces, right? And so, you know, I think at this moment, despite all the challenges we face, it's really a moment for those of us working against racialized policing, expansion of the police state uh, and mass imprisonment and mass deportation to collectively join forces and figure out the spaces where we can fight. And that's already happening. It's been happening for a while. But I think in terms of concretely pushing back 
on this moment. It's, you know, a moment to kind of rethink the past 20, 30 years, how we got here and how ideologies like broken windows have really become normalized and need to be challenged. I just saw a report from a group that's called Civic Community Initiatives for Visiting Immigrants in Confinement, and it said that media coverage, while it's often critical of deportation policy, in this case specifically the detention system itself, we tend to hear very little from immigrants themselves or from people in those systems themselves. Now, vulnerable and out-of-status people are not the easiest for reporters to talk to, obviously, for various reasons, including uh, access. But overall, I wonder, how do you think the inclusion of those voices might change coverage and perhaps public understanding? And is there anything that you would like to see media in particular uh, doing at this point on this set of issues? I think in this current moment, you know, one of the challenges that we face is because we receive news in so many different ways and information like through social media is kind of a return back to more what I would call like long form or investigative reporting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I found one of the most compelling articles about this impact of broken windows policing is an article that was in the New Yorker on Khalif Brower and what happened to him, a young man from the Bronx who was arrested uh, for stealing a backpack and then was held in Rikers for years in solitary confinement for a large part of it and then end up committing suicide after he was released. And so I think that, you know, one of the issues that happens is when we use words like deportation or detention, they're almost sanitized, right? What does that mean to people to be incarcerated, to be locked up, to be taken away from your family? You know, I was talking to my colleague this morning about trying to stop the deportation of a man who is, the government is trying to deport back to Honduras. He, in the last 50 years, he's only spent 12 days there. That's not his home. And he has three children who are adults but are severely disabled and rely daily, minute to minute, on his care. And so there's a deep cruelty to this system that would definitely be elevated uh, by including the voices of people who've been directly impacted. And I think that that's a good place to start. That's where we need to start. Well, and and that actually just makes me think of another point, which is that a number of the stories that we're reading raise questions about whether or not these orders will pass legal muster, whether they're really enforceable or workable. And that is absolutely important. But we should recognize, shouldn't we, that announcements like this can have an effect even without going through the whole process of of becoming official laws. I mean, they do they do kind of green light behavior, don't they? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I feel like within the uh, immigrant communities right now, there's widespread fear. There's trauma that impacts on children who have to uh, live with either the fear of themselves or their parents being taken away from them. We all are hearing, you know, more uh, stories about racial profiling of police and targeting of people who they perceive to be immigrants. And I think that, you know, this is one of the challenges that we face in this particular political moment is a kind of uh, a callousness and a acceptance of intolerance or a mm-hmm. uh, codification, I guess, of intolerance that we're going to have to figure out how to push back on. Well, and I guess you, you have addressed that. I did want to ask, you know, what are some elements of what a humane immigration policy would look like? And what are we, a lot of what we're talking about in these days is 
We feel like we're in chaos almost, but we don't want to settle back to the status quo ante. You know, we want to have a new vision that we're, that we're pushing for. And you've talked about making connections between groups and different sorts of work. That's, I guess, a part of the vision of the humane immigration policy that we could be fighting for. Yeah, I think, I mean, it sounds so simple to seem almost silly, but I think that the basis of a humane immigration policy really is, is to begin to respect people fully as human beings. We're living again in a moment where people have been reduced to negative labels and uh, determined as being therefore undeserving of the most basic human rights. And, you know, this is phenomenon of exclusion, expulsion, and ex- extreme punishment is not limited just to the United States and, it, you know, the boundaries of this country, but really it's a global phenomenon. And if we step back and think about, you know, what is the function of controlling borders in this way and what is the function of excluding certain people or punishing people and exiling them? And it's to reinforce a system of inequality where certain people have access to mobility and to wealth and, you know, the vast majority of the world's population are denied that. And so I think, you know, if we're starting to look back kind of humanely, it has to be a global approach, which also takes into consideration the historical and economic and political forces that push people to migrate. It's a hard line when you're an import, baby boy, it's hard times when you ain't sent for racist feet the belly of the beast with they pitchforks, rich chores done by the people that get ignored. Uh, ya se armó, ya se despertaron, it's a whole awakening, la alarma ya sonó hace rato, los que quieren buscan, pero no se apodan como vagos, we're the same ones hustling on every level, ten los datos, walk a mile in our shoes, abrochense los zapatos, I've been scoping y'all dudes, y'all ain't been working like I do, why y'all work ya, it hurts ya, you claim I'm stealing jobs, oh Peter Piper claimed he picked them, he just underpaid Pablo, but there ain't a paper trail when you living in the shadows we america's ghost riders the credits only borrowed it's a matter of time before the checks all come but immigrants we get the job done there is one thing people on the left need to get deadly serious about under the trump administration either we hang together or as they say we hang apart Donald Trump is certainly deadly serious, deadly serious about harassing, intimidating, vilifying and removing all those he considers subversive. And his immigration program is just a start. More than two million people were deported under the eight years of the Obama presidency. That's greater than any preceding administration. The scope of Trump's plan builds on the law that Obama left in place and expands enforcement with thousands of new agents and enlisting the already expanded forces of local police and sheriffs. The targets, the White House says, are those people who are in this country and pose a threat to our public or have committed a crime. That was Sean Spicer. Note the phrasing. No crime is actually required other than posing a threat. We're talking about a dragnet of the sort last seen in the 1950s. Operation Wetback not only rounded up and carted off over a million people in brutal conditions, a congressional inquiry later compared to slave ships, but also fueled and was fueled by a red scare, the same scare that was also targeting labor organizers, civil rights activists, and early environmentalists at the time. Then anti-communism fanned the flames of anti-immigrant paranoia. Communists were said to be flooding across the border. Today it's rapists and terrorists, criminals. 
the same criminals, let's recall, whom Americans have been taught to fear for years already, justifying the militarization of our borders, our police forces, our schools, our streets, and in a different sense, our media and Hollywood. As we know from history, all those institutions can work seamlessly together to effectively suspend the Constitution for all of us, given enough public panic. Republicans in general and Trump, Bannon, and Pence in particular seem to love the 50s, and implicitly the Cold War, wet-back, Jim Crow, father-knows-best McCarthyism all those years brought. Although he declined to name it, the president praised Eisenhower's deportation drive in the debates last year. The witch hunts and migrant panics divided liberals and the left, split the labor and civil rights movements, and held back the coming together of a movement of movements that is so urgently needed at this moment. Who benefits? The beneficiaries then and now are pretty obvious. The ones to gain are big business, especially big agriculture, big prison, big war machine, and big police. Anyone, in fact, who profits off a poor and relatively powerless pool of workers. Who's hurt? Well, everyone else. So doesn't that put an awful lot of people in the same big boat? Think about it. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. What President Trump has said he's going to do, keep a list of, quote, immigrant crimes. Well, this weekly report that he has called for uh, recalls a number of things from the past that we have seen before, which is this uh, move to isolate and identify and then vilify a vulnerable minority community in order to move against it. Uh, when he, I just went back last night and reread his speech from when he declared his candidacy, and the Mexican rapist comment was in from the beginning. And so uh, this has been a theme throughout. And we see back in Nazi Germany, there was a paper called—a Nazi paper called Der Stürmer, and they had a department called Letterbox. And readers were invited to send in stories of supposed Jewish crimes. 
and Der Sturmer would publish them, and they would include some pretty uh, horrific graphic illustrations of these crimes as well. And there was even a sort of a light version of it, uh, if you will, uh, racism light, in which the Neues Volk, which was more like a look or a life magazine, which normally highlighted beautiful Aryan families and their beautiful homes, would uh, run a feature like The Criminal Jew, and they would show photos of uh, Jewish-looking, as they called it, people, who represented different kinds of crimes that one ought to watch out for from Jews. So this preoccupation with focusing in on one subset of the population's crimes and then uh, depicting that as somehow depraved and abnormal from the main population is something we've seen quite a bit in the past. Even in the U.S., uh, before Japanese-American internment, you had newspapers like the San Francisco Chronicle uh, running about uh, the unassimilability, uh, unassimilability of the Japanese immigrants and also the uh, crime tendencies and depravities they had, which were distinguished from the main American population. And, uh, of course, this flies in the face of all of studies that have shown that that the uh, the crime rate among uh, immigrant populations in the United States is actually lower than it is among uh, ordinary American citizens. Uh, but yet this is attempting to take isolated incidents or particular crimes and sort of raise them to the level of a of a general trend, isn't it? It is. And I think it's part of a disturbing narrative in which you strip out the broader context and the specificity of uh, actions like this, and you try to weave them into this preset narrative of good and evil somehow that really ends up being simple and dishonest and uh, very counterproductive for the society as a whole. But yes, in general, these groups uh, would want to keep a lower profile. They would want to stay off law enforcement's radar. And so uh, this is one of the reasons that's been suspected that that's actually a lower crime rate. But if you get a few dramatic images—and don't forget now, this won't be coming out—you know, Breitbart has had this black crimes tag that they've used to try to do a similar thing in the past, and now we have Bannon in the White House. And it's sort of a scaling up and doing this with a different minority group. And you'll have these, what will no doubt be very dramatic narratives that will come forward that will eclipse the larger picture, and they're going to have the imprimatur of a government report, which I think is another disturbing aspect. I wanted to ask you, Andrea Pitzer, um, about the White House considering a plan to make visitors reveal cell phone, Internet data. Describe the role mass surveillance plays in authoritarian societies. Well, over time, we've seen that it's very hard to have an authoritarian or a totalitarian society. Uh, a state that runs without a secret police. And you can't—what you need the secret police for is to gather information secretly. Um, the surveillance techniques and abilities that we have today are, are really unparalleled in history. And while we can't yet be sure what the Trump administration's motives are, um, what they have at their disposal is, is far greater than uh, what was had in Soviet Russia, in Nazi Germany. I'm thinking in particular of um, Himmler complaining that he had trouble keeping track of all the people he needed to because he needed so many agents. Um, but when you have the kind of technology that we do, uh, you don't need as many people if you have the right uh, tools to use. And so the ability to gather uh, that kind of information and then potentially use it um, domestically or on foreigners uh, who happen to be here, I think is something that's worth paying attention to to be concerned about. 
That's Andrea Pitzer, journalist and author who writes about lost and forgotten history. Her upcoming book, One Long Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps. There were um, uh, protesters who added uh, at the you can see it on your screen there. A sign, a, a humongous sign that says refugees welcomed and they attached it to um, the statue, the Statue of Liberty. It was um, it was definitely a, a sight to see. Of course, as you know, um, affixing anything to a public monument is illegal. However, the activists who did it were not arrested. I guess they got away in time. One of them, uh, by the name of Dave, spoke with Fusion and let them know that this is something that they had been planning for a while. They had every intention of doing this because they feel like this is the most appropriate way to to make the statement, to make a statement to Donald Trump uh, against what Donald Trump is trying to do. Um, he said, this is Dave. All he gave was his, or David, rather, he gave his first name. And he said, I think the Statue of Liberty is our best symbol of the role that immigrants have played and continue to play every day uh, in this country. This was first conceived in response to what's been called the travel ban of the Trump administration, which I think flies in the face of the founding principles of the United States. This is according to one of the activists who put the sign up on the Statue of Liberty. So, um, There is a lot of tension in the reality. The perception of it is that America is welcoming. The reality of it is we've been deporting the hell out of people through the Trump Obama administration and now through the, the Trump administration. If this is something we're saying as an aspiration, that this is what we want to be and this is where we want to go, I co-sign all the way um, because, of course, this is. America doesn't have a lot in terms of actually actual good policies and history. You know, our history is jaded from the beginning. The only thing America really has is aspirational. And if this this sign, which I think it is uh, more correctly, should be an aspiration to what we want to become, not a statement of we're something different today than we were last year. Um, again, we'll see how Donald Trump, how far he goes to distinguish himself from President Obama, who deported millions of people. We'll see if Donald Trump actually tries to outdo that because it's a tall order to do. But never mind that. The point, the fact of the matter is, if this is who we want to become, because we have not been we have not been a welcoming people. We've been welcoming to people who look like us. And when I say us, I'm actually not talking about me because I'm black. We've been we've been welcoming to people who look like the people who were here already. And then we were they we were welcoming to people who were the same. You know, if you're Irish, you weren't welcome. If you're, you know, we, we have a history of not really being welcoming. 
But aspirationally, I mean, we say stuff like, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me if I lift my lamp beside the Gordon door. Aspirationally, that's what we want to be. And so this protest, uh, it's a beautiful protest. Um, aspirationally, I'd 100% co-sign on what they're trying to do and hope, hope that one day, America could actually be welcoming instead of just talking about being welcoming. I am an immigrant. I am a stranger in this place. Here but for the grace of God go I. I am an immigrant. I have left everything I own. To everything I've known I say goodbye. She said, give me your time, don't you know I'm weary? She said, give me your poor, she's talking to me. One of your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And I never have lost sight of what this journey has been for. See how she lifts her lamp beside the golden door. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, protect immigrants in your community, join the hashtag here to stay network and hashtag raid watch. Trump's executive orders at the end of January had an immediate and traumatic impact on the immigration community. Under the guise of protecting America from acts of terror or criminal conduct by undocumented immigrants, the ramped-up ICE raids and deportations have targeted DREAMers as well as those protected under DACA, a law Trump wants to get rid of, of course. According to the organization Free Press, in just the first week of February, immigration officers arrested 680 people. Living under constant threat of an immigration raid is a nightmare for undocumented individuals who are at risk of arrest and separation from their families via deportation. There are many ways to stand up for and protect the undocumented people in your community, but here are three actions you can take that will help you stay informed when someone needs help, easily report ICE activity in your community, and encourage your local officials to support undocumented immigrants. Number one, sign up to get notified if an immigrant in your community needs help. The immigrant youth-led organization United We Dream has launched the hashtag here to stay network. By signing up, you pledge your commitment to defending undocumented people in your community and will get notified when they need your help. Just Google hashtag here to stay network and the Action Network sign-up page will be your first hit. Number two, Report ICE activity in your community. The organization America's Voice is encouraging people to record video and take pictures of raids or ICE activity in their communities and post them to social media using the hashtag RaidWatch. This not only helps alert activists and immigration lawyers to the raids, but provides warning to other undocumented immigrants in your community and publicly highlights the injustice of Trump's executive orders. Go to americasvoice.org backslash expose ICE graphic to learn more and check out the hashtag on Twitter.
Number three, tell your mayor to declare your city a sanctuary of safety for undocumented immigrants. United We Dream has also launched WeAreHereToStay.org, a website with resources for immigrants, as well as a campaign to encourage U.S. mayors to declare their cities sanctuaries of safety for immigrants, Muslims, black people, and members of the LGBTQ community. In a sanctuary city, officials implement policies to restrict local police from turning immigrants over to federal immigration agents and declare in no uncertain terms that immigrants are welcome. Call, write, tweet at, and show up at the office of your city's mayor to demand that they protect those under attack by Trump. Go to weareheretostay.org to learn more. And finally, it is critically important for those under threat to know their rights and resources. If you are an immigrant, go to the Resources tab at weareheretostay.org to read your rights and tips on what to do if ICE comes to your door. You can also download deportation defense cards in more than 10 languages that include those rights and tips and the United We Dream hotline to report the incident. That hotline number is 844-363-1423. Again, that's 844 844- Four three six three one four two three. Additionally, the organization Latino Rebel has created a valuable resource for undocumented immigrants called the Migra Map. The Migromap is the first map pinpointing ICE raids and activity across the U.S. To view the map, go to migramap.latinorebels.com. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if standing up for immigrant human rights is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about protecting immigrants in your community by joining joining the hashtag here to stay network and hashtag raidwash via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Of course, it's been said a million times, but it can't be said enough. No human being is illegal, period. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? Joanne, if we could get a start at the beginning of American history, let's, let's take a sort of a scan of the oscillations in American immigration policy. So what was it like at the beginning? Well, in the early republic, I mean, I guess I would say there's some ambivalence about immigrants. Because on the one hand, I mean, if you look at something like, um, <laughs> surprise, I'm going to mention Alexander Hamilton, um, Hamilton's report on manufacturers, you can see in there that he's thinking about in the future, there might be a more manufacturing kind of a nation. And he's excited about the fact that Americans will be able to be working at this. But he's also thinking about how that will attract immigrants and, and give immigrants something to do. So he's on, on the one hand, and not only Hamilton, are enthusiastic uh, about bringing people in. And on the other hand, at that same moment in time, you flip that around, and they're looking at Europe, and they're looking in particular at France. Mon and Dieu, they're seeing France. <laughs> yes, France. They're looking at France. Um, they are looking at France, and they're afraid about what they see. They see social upset. They see a king 
getting killed. So you're and talking beheadings. about the French Revolution, Joanne. I am indeed talking about the French Revolution. So on the one hand, they are excited about immigrants. And on the other hand, given that it's a brand new nation, they're still establishing things like national character, national identity, even just the basic workings of the government. And lo and behold, there's the scary French Revolution happening. And people potentially coming from there to the United States, that's a scary thing. Yeah, and they they split all this pretty finely. Uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin worries a lot about what kind of immigrants from Europe are going to be okay. And uh, my ancestors, the Scots-Irish, he's not so sure about uh, that. <laughs> they seem to be a little bit too drawn to uh, the fighting and to the violence. That's and, why they uh, sent him to Tennessee. Yeah, exactly. Oh, but, but you know, there's – okay, this allows me to say one of my favorite goofy things. Actually, I, and I have too many favorite goofy things. That's all but, right. But um, there's someone from the time period – who actually says that his impression of what America is going to become is a Mac-ocracy, meaning everyone will be named Mac, Mac, Macintosh, McIntyre, Mac and so he, he's <laughs> and he was talking right. about that very brilliantly thing. And he anticipating was. McDonald's. I love it. <laughs> he was. <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting because, of course, the first kind of crisis uh, in immigration history in the United States comes from a lot of Macs and O's of uh, the Irish <laughs> who were coming in because of the devastation of their economy there by the potato blight. And the United States is not really sure that it likes these When was this said? This is in the 1840s, 1850s. And what people worry about is that these fragile structures of government and economy that Joanne's talking about are going to be overrun by all these people who are poor and rural, but they were also Catholic. And that's a longstanding thing, right? There's kind of an ongoing fear of Catholicism and Catholics in America, which, I mean, it's kind of quirky. My, my gut instinct would be that part of that must have to do with fears about loyalty, where, I mean, were Americans worried about Catholics being more loyal to the Pope than to the United States? I don't know. What, what, where, how do you guys well, I, well, I sense that out? I wonder what Brian thinks about this, but it strikes me that that's the long-running continuity in all this, is that there's some locus of loyalty that's not mm. America. It if goes, it's not the Pope, it's somebody else. It goes back to yeah. the early republic, Joanne. It's about independence. <laughs> you can't have citizens who are not thinking for themselves, and might they be controlled by others, whether it's radical French ideology, whether it's the Pope, and in the 20th century, whether it's a communist cell that's telling them how how to think. You know, those are really great points. And it occurs to me that what we're always afraid of is some group that's more coordinated, hierarchical, authoritarian than we are. The very thing we love about ourselves, that there's nobody in charge, is also what freaks us out. That's there's exactly nobody right. in charge. <laughs> Joanne and Ed, looking at this from a 20th century vantage point, maybe even 21st century, what strikes me is how little the national government had to do with anything. I mean, the national government didn't stop anybody from coming in, as far as I can tell. But there's another case that driving through all of this is a huge demand, need for labor in large parts of the country. Not only is the economy growing, but the continent itself is growing. And so whether it's the West and the Chinese or it's the East Coast and the immigrants from Europe coming in working in factories – there's a great need everywhere except the American South where there's this great surplus of labor of people who've been held in slavery. So as you think about sort of the drivers of American immigration policy, economics is always a key part of it. And big business consistently throughout American history uh, has been in favor of the free immigration 
of labor to basically create a larger labor supply and drive down the price of labor. They're in favor of it until they're not. And you think about the railroads, the first big business are in favor of Chinese immigrants until suddenly, no, they're not. Until they don't need the labor. Exactly. That's, that's exactly right. Well, not only do they, do they not need it, but because they've gotten it, it, it now it's scary and intimidating. And we know, we know when we fast forward the film, we're soon going to have draconian restrictions in 1924 uh, that really cuts down significantly all immigration, pretty much limits it to a trickle. Brian, you talked before about labor. After the labor needs of World War I have come and gone, after the Red Scare, in which they're worried about Bolsheviks coming to the country, have kind of settled down, they said, listen, this is out of control. Here's what we're going to do. Let's pass a new law saying that the new immigrants can only represent 2% of the immigrant groups that are already in the country. And guess what? Most of them happen to come from Western Europe. It's amazing, isn't it? Just funny how that math worked <laughs> out like that. And this is striking when we think about the rich ethnic history of so much of the United States, the people they were trying to keep out were the Italians, you know, people from Southern and Eastern Europe, and also trying to keep out Jews. So 1924, and then for a pretty long time there, that is the status quo. Yeah. All right, Ed, Joanne, I'm going to pivot here, Uh and I'm (laughs) turning on the flag blower. My dad used to bring me to rotary meetings. When I was growing up, and not only was there an American flag and everybody said the Pledge of Allegiance, but there was a flag blower. It was a machine that made the red, white, and blue wave in the breeze while we said no. that. I'm not, not – <laughs> how could one make this up, right? I and, guess And that's true. you may make fun of me, but when I think of all the immigrants that have come to the United States and have – successfully assimilated and have pushed back with new ideas and new forms of labor and even organizing labor. I get teary-eyed. I'm really quite moved that we are a nation for all our problems that has successfully integrated so many of these immigrants over such a long period of time. I think that's true, but you know, it and I agree with what you just said, and I feel the same way. But but the idea of setting up a blower <laughs> so that you could have the flag look nice, it's so evocative of what we're talking about yes. here, which is this is what we want it to look like, right? This is the beacon. This is what it means. But then when you get to the reality of it, it's not the pretty flag with the blower. It's It's a lot more complicated. But we like the way it looks. You know, we like to think of ourselves that way. It's so much more complicated when you get beyond that blowing flag. Reminds me of the ad they had at the Super Bowl recently in which uh, 84 Lumber, for some reason, used enormous investment in an ad to show a woman and her little girl uh, apparently coming into the United States illegally, but the little girl is picking up scraps all along the way with which she makes an American flag. You know, I thought it was... You know, that I, I could not be moved by a Super Bowl ad, but in fact, I was. But did you see, did you go online and see the end of it? Which no. apparently I did. What happened? Because I thought, I thought, wow, that was really moving. They get up to this wall and they're standing there and she's got the little flag and you think, oh no, they're not going to be able to get through. And they, they sort of walk a little ways and there's a door in the wall and the, the door opens and the light kind of streams through and the mother and daughter sort of hold hands and head off into the sunlight. It, it, it was like, it was 
moving and kind of gripping and sort of made me very sad. And, and then it had that sort of amazingly sort of... Saccharine? Yeah, ascending into the heavens kind of, oh, you know, and America opened its doors and let us in. So it was like of the moment, but it went right back to the blowing flag. Well, that's what I was getting ready to say. It it, it makes the analogy in real time, Joanne, that you were just making. So yeah. we, we like our flag to be beautiful and blowing in the wind, artificial or otherwise. We know this is the best of America. We know that we're the country that has been the welcome to the world. But we also know that sometimes we don't rise to that standard, and we succumb to our own worst instincts. We just heard clips today starting with On the Media laying out the situation with our immigration policy and some of the logistical problems the administration faces. Professor Richard Wolff on Economic Update spoke with reporter Bob Henley about the rarely told story of the positive impact of immigrants on communities. Counterspin delved into some of the systemic problems with our worldwide approach to immigration policy. Laura Flanders made the connection between Trump's migration program and the Cold War dragnet. Democracy Now! highlighted the new Trump policy of publishing a list of crimes committed by immigrants, a page taken straight out of the Nazi playbook. Benjamin Dixon responded to the Refugees Welcome banner hung from the Statue of Liberty. Our activism for today is in support of the hashtag Here to Stay Network and hashtag Raid Watch, and Backstory discussed the oscillations of American immigration policy through the years. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Felicia. I'm from Centralia, Missouri. I'm responding to the voicemail from Ken that was on February 17th. One of the things that struck me in listening to him and his complaints about being shamed by This Week in Blackness is that I find it very interesting that shame is something that shouldn't be labeled at white cis men. Um, across the board whenever we talk about shame and groups who need to be shamed, what we're really talking about are women, black and brown people, anyone who isn't white, straight, and male. Um, It's an assumption, and for some reason, we live in a society, I guess it's because of patriarchy, that upholds this idea that you shouldn't shame this one group. And I found it interesting because in my life, I've had a lot of privilege, but I've also experienced a lot of shame for wanting to do things that white straight men didn't think I should. Um, I have a master's in English lit. I, I teach as an adjunct at a local community college. Um, I tried to get my PhD and ran out of money. And consequently now I have a butt ton of student loan debt that I can't pay off because the fact that I don't make enough money to make the type of payments that they want me to make. And I had white male professors telling me that 
I should have been happy with just the BA because nobody in my family had any college education or that I should have been happy with just the MA because again I had already went way beyond what my family should do and again it was this idea that it was shameful for me to try to do something that was more than what I should have done based on the fact that my family is white working class. I've experienced people shaming me because of the fact that I can't pay back those loans. I've experienced people shaming me because as a woman, I've not wanted to fit what society deems as appropriate. Um, I didn't want children. And at 50 years old, I'm not going to have children at this point. I didn't want a traditional marriage. All of these things were things that people felt were properly reasons to shame me. And so while I understand that the comments offended him, there's a part of me that's going, join the club. As somebody who, while I am white, I am a woman, I am bisexual, I consider myself a secular pagan, and I'm currently in a long-term relationship with a trans woman, I have to deal with shame on a daily basis that's labeled and attacked and thrown at me for stepping outside society's guidelines. Get used to it. Um, I understand that you were angry and I applaud the fact that you took the moment to step back and say, well, why would they say that? But for the longest time, not that this makes it right by any means, because I don't believe in shaming people. I don't think it achieves what everybody seems to think it does. I think it just makes things worse. But we live in a society where what's good for the goose isn't good for the gander. And this is just one example. It's a privilege that white straight men evidently don't need to be shamed. And it's something that needs to be fixed because, as I said, I don't think shaming does anything. I also found it very interesting what you said in your discussion with your father, where you said, where he said that one of the problems, if I remember correctly, is that there are too many people trying to gain rights. And I found that very telling because the fact that when you technically talk about the idea of what are rights, we're talking about things that everybody is guaranteed. Um, and lo- everybody likes to go back to the phrase, the, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But one of the things that that shows is that rights are really talking about privileges. That we're not talking about something that everyone has the right to. We're talking about a privilege that are given to certain groups. And that the problem is that too many of these other groups are now trying to get privileges that for one reason or another, the the quote-unquote majority culture thinks they don't deserve, which is very different from rights. To me, I think the right for people to be married to the person they love is something that is a right. It's not based on whether or not it's between a man and a woman, or a woman and a woman, or a man and a man. It's based on the fact that everybody has the right to make that choice to live with the person that they love 
and have a family and have everything that they hope and dream for. I also think that it's a right for people to go into a bathroom that fits with their identity. And it's not a threat to somebody else's rights that maybe how they perceive themselves isn't how the other person perceives themselves. It's a right to be able to get a job and to be fairly chosen for that job and not have to deal with somebody deciding that you don't deserve the job based on your color, your sex, your sexual orientation, or whatever reason that somebody would decide that they don't think that you should be hired. Anyway, um, I probably went way too long, but I really appreciate listening to everything that you do, Jay. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Jay, thank you for giving us an uninterrupted episode of The Indivisible Playbook. It contains a lot of valuable information, and as a progressive, I hope people will make wide use of its contents. Where I part company with Indivisible is their suggestion we employ a purely defensive strategy. That's the wrong strategy, for a variety of reasons. First, a defensive strategy is a losing strategy. No one can win every battle. If all you do is defend, eventually you lose everything. Second, It's not the most effective way to counter Republicans and their man in the White House. For a full pursuit, a progressive policy is the best way. Remember the saying is, the best defense is a good offense. For example, we could defend the Affordable Care Act by just saying we won't accept its repeal. But if instead we demand publicly funded health care, where all essential health care is paid for by the government out of a progressive tax, we put the Republicans in a bind. Now the public is demanding a progressive replacement, and if Republicans put forward anything else, it will be compared with a publicly funded system, not the ACA. That eliminates their biggest talking point about how people can't afford to get coverage under so-called Obamacare. Third, going on the offense gives us the opportunity to inform the public why our progressive health care policy is superior to conservative policy. We might not immediately get publicly funded system in place of the Affordable Care Act, but if we had to compromise, we would be compromising from a position of strength. And when progressives capture the White House and get majorities in Congress in a few years, we will be positioned to implement a plan that actually solves the health care crisis. A publicly funded system can finally give us affordable, universal health care. This is where we see why Indivisible may want to trap progressives in a purely defensive strategy. Indivisible comes from insiders in the Democratic establishment. If all we do is defend ACA, it makes their job easier. When Democrats regain control, all they'll want to do is reinstate ACA. Then they can claim victory. That's not good enough. One huge problem with the Affordable Care Act is that it makes further progress more difficult because it pushes people into the for-profit health insurance system. That gives additional power to private companies, allowing them to intensify their lobbying efforts. This is not the path to universal, affordable health care. Progressives should reject this call to hold off on new ideas. Instead, we should put forward our best initiatives. As a progressive, I'm not willing to wait out Republicans' hold on government before going back to making progress. I'm going on the offensive, and status quo Democrats will need to join me. They should either join progressives and attacking minority President Donald Trump and his party, 
or they should duck. Anyone between us and the Republicans will be in the way. Jay, thank you for your continued efforts to bring us the best of the left. It's a great service to everyone, and I really appreciate your hard work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Just a quick response to Rich today. Uh, Rich sent in his message via email, so I already responded to him uh, by email. And I'll just basically tell you the same thing I told him uh, that I, I agree with everything he's saying. And it's interesting that I, I listened to the whole uh, indivisible guide as well. And it didn't send up any red flags for me. I, I, I didn't think of it as much of a strategy guide that, and that it was going down the path of positioning itself very defensively. But I suppose he's right. I mean, I'm sure they give a few examples of you know, here's a policy you may want to fight against. Here's what you would do about that. And and I'm sure it framed it in a, in a defensive way, but I, I see the indivisible guide very much as a, a tactics guide, not really at all a strategy guide. Although the team has since, uh, you know, put forward a few suggestions of policies you may want to fight against uh, on, on their website, and they've created scripts and, and all of that for when you want to call into Congress. But ultimately, I think it should be thought of as a tactics guide. That's that's really where their strength is. The whole thing was, you know, the idea is that they were congressional staffers, and they know how the system works. So let us give you the insider's view on how to have the, the biggest impact. Uh, those are all tactics. Tactics are what you employ once you have a strategy, once you've decided what policies you want to fight for or against, how you want to focus your energy, uh, how you can get a group of people together and organize to you know, make your action more impactful. Uh, all of that comes together first, and then you use tactics to implement your strategy. So I just thought it'd be nice to have a little uh, refresher on the difference between the two. There are a lot of new activists out there, unsurprisingly. Uh, so th those are a couple of important concepts to understand. And if you missed it the first time, uh, the Indivisible Guide, uh, what Rich is referring to, uh, they not only wrote out their guide, but made an audiobook of it. And I put it in the show. It's a whole episode of the show. So if you missed it, go back in the feed just a few episodes and find the Indivisible Guide. It's definitely worth a listen uh, and is uh, quite motivational, I think, to, to help you get involved. Now, just a quick reminder before I go about Credo Mobile, the only progressive phone company that allows you to make the world a little bit better every time you use your cell phone. Credo gives millions of dollars every year to nonprofits like Planned Parenthood, the ACLU, and United We Dream, the largest immigrant youth network. Not to mention their coverage is dependable and you can keep your existing number when you switch over. So go to credomobile.com slash best of the left or call 800-654-3188. Two to switch today. As always, keep your comments coming into the voicemail line. That number 
202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder